Keep your Bibles open at Ephesians chapter 1. And I don't know if you got lost in the first 14 verses already. There were a lot of big words and there were repeated themes to the praise of His glory. Uh, this is actually going to point us towards our closing hymn um, in which you will see the themes of Ephesians built into the hymn to the praise of His glory. I'm going to reread just the first three verses and then we're going to do an overview of this book to help us better go into it, sort of knowing the terrain, knowing the framework so that we can receive benefit from it. Ephesians chapter 1, look at verses 1 to 3. In it, it's going to contain uh, the general greeting. It says to Ephesus, some of the older manuscripts don't have any specific church, and they believe it was intended for many churches in that area, and they call that a circular letter. So this really is a letter that doesn't address a lot of specific problems like Corinth or the church at Colossae or even the church at Galatia. This is more of a, a general letter written to all churches. So Paul begins in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Typically in English letters, we would end with something similar to what he does in verse 2. Uh, in, in the older days, they would build that into the greeting. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We're going to stop right there. Because already the words begin to build up. Can you feel that? Okay, so he is, he, is, he is proclaiming this blessing from God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he just, no sooner does he greet us and he starts to scale the heights of what we're going to call a theological mountain. I don't know if you've ever lived at low elevation for of any length of time. I did for more than a decade in South Florida. I grew up in my middle school, teenage, early college years in Coral Springs. Coral Springs has an elevation of 13 feet above sea level. Okay, so that's where I grew up. And, and when you live in South Florida long enough, when you travel north and get in even to southern Georgia, it can appear mountainous, right? Oh, is that a hill we're going up? Oh, wow, we're actually going down now. You don't do that in Coral Springs. You don't, you know, you go flat over to Fort Lauderdale, flat down to Miami, okay, flat over to Naples. I mean, it's all like it fluctuates two or three feet. That's it. So Georgia can appear mountainous, southern Georgia, even though Atlanta sits only at 1,050 feet. Once you travel into north Georgia, western North Carolina, eastern Tennessee, you start to see the beauty of what people start to call mountains. Okay? And these mountains, my parents live in western North Carolina. Brevard sits at 2,231 feet. Okay, don't take those notes. These, it's all by way of introduction. Okay, but once you get to 2,231 feet compared to 13 feet, it's a whole other level, right? It's a whole other elevation. However, once you travel out to the Rockies, which anybody here has, because they're right there, right? right out the window, you start to look back on the eastern mountains, you know, unless you're talking about Mount Mitchell or, you know, some of the peaks, but the range, Smoky Mountains, Blue Ridge, those are just hills, right? Right? We become mountain snobs out here in Colorado. Okay, from Pikes Peak, we look down on everyone else, right? From Mount Evans, you can just feel the smugness, you know, like, you know, eastern people, not me, but you guys, you feel that, uh, you feel that smugness. And you realize how impressive the mountains of Colorado are. I've not been there, but the highest peak in North America is Mount McKinley, also known as Denali in Alaska. That's more than a mile higher than Mount Elbert, which is our highest peak in Colorado. How's that for a dose of humility? Right? A mile higher than our tallest 14er. That's impressive. After I returned from trekking in the Himalayas, 
of Nepal, it surprised me. And I wasn't expecting this, but when we landed, it surprised me how much the front range of the Rockies looked like foothills. It's all a matter of perspective and experience. We were only 149 miles away from Mount Everest, which is the tallest peak on the globe. The Apostle Paul makes an interesting statement. I'm going to have you stay in Ephesians 1. But in 1 Corinthians 3, a letter to a church which was splintered with problems, he says this, Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, so he's talking about the law, specifically the first five books of our Bible, whenever Moses is read, the law, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So what what Paul is putting forth here is that something is happening by the work of the Holy Spirit that removes this veil, this covering, and we start to go up in degrees of transformation. Or we could say elevation, if we keep with our, our mountain analogy. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And you start to wonder then, are we, is this just like reckless spiritism or is this still tethered to the Word? Because at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it sounds like the Word is done away. Now we just trust the Spirit. But remember, there are no chapter breaks in these letters. This was one complete letter. And he continues writing and he, and he links it by this word, therefore, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. Okay, what kind of ways is he talking about? We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper, listen, with God's word. All along, it's been about God's word. But when the spirit comes along with God's word, it brings clarity and degrees or would you elevations of change. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So it's still talking about that. This is what Ephesians does. Ephesians is one of those letters that is going to take you from one degree by God's spirit through Ephesians to another degree of glory in understanding who God is. If I were to classify the books of our New Testament as mountain peaks, I would include all 27 books in a single majestic mountain range. But I would say there are four peaks that sort of jut up above all of them. This is just my personal evaluation. I would place John's account of the gospel as one of those tall peaks because John presents Jesus as the Son of God and he builds that around seven signs, seven miracles to prove his deity. I would think Romans is one of the tallest, most treacherous peaks because he brings us to the high altitude of justification by God's grace alone. You start to, when you read Romans, when you read Romans 1 to 11, you can start feeling dizzy. You sort of need some theological interpretive oxygen when you're up in those heights. Revelation may be the Everest of the New Testament. Because very few travel it, and many who do suffer exegetical casualties by wrong interpretations. And any who do hike into chapter 4 and all the way to chapter 22, if you summit, you cannot stay there long. You like summit, take your selfie, and descend. That's what Revelation does. The other, the other highest peak, I would say, out of these four would be Ephesians. And that's where we're going to climb right now. So like any trip, we're going to study the map, note our elevations and coordinates, learn some of the local language and customs, and check our gear. That's what we're going to do. That's all we're going to do this morning with Ephesians. So let's note several things. We kind of put the map out on the table. And let's note this. Let's note the setting. Like uh, Ephesus doesn't have a whole lot in common with us, or so we think. So let's try to get our bearings on, 
on why was Paul writing this area. Ephesus and the surrounding area was the epicenter for false religious worship. Greek false gods, Roman false gods. And for years, more than two years, maybe up to three and a half years, the longest Paul ever stayed in a single place, three and a half years, Paul had an effective missionary ministry in this area. Years later, after that first missionary journey, Paul would write a letter to the believers at Rome. He's writing that letter from the city of Corinth. Okay, so he's he's visiting these places, but these letters are written because he's not with them. Right? That's why we write that's why we write letters. That's why some of you still wrote emails to family this week, because you are not with them. Or you send a text. Of course we do that you may have sent text to somebody in here already this morning. I actually am aware that that happens. Um, you may have sent a text because you're not right next to them. Okay, it's a, it's a form of communication. He's in Corinth. He's planning to visit the believers at Rome. He writes them a letter and he eventually does visit Rome, but not the way he had expected. And by the way, everything I'm going to give you, I'm not going to give you all the references. Everything I'm going to tell you about the history of how this unfolds, you can read in the only history of the New Testament. And that's the book of Acts. From Corinth, Paul traveled by land back through Macedonia, then took a ship at Philippi for the rest of his journey back to Syria. After stops at Troas and Miletus, where he gave his farewell address to which elders from which church? From the church at Ephesus, they gathered on the beach. Do you remember that? And he prays with them and he says, I'm probably not going to see you anymore. I mean, it's this heart-rending goodbye with the elders, with the leaders in this area that we're about to study this letter. He gives his farewell address. He finally lands at Tyre and makes his way to Jerusalem to deliver a collection of money given by Gentile believers to the suffering Jews. By the way, that, that offering was intended to unite one of the very things Paul is going to address in this letter, and that is the unity between Gentiles and Jews. The church was already taking the initiative by showing their love through a love offering to the suffering Jewish believers. It was on this journey back to Jerusalem to bring this collection that he was attacked by a Jewish mob on his way into the temple and nearly beaten to death. He was delivered and arrested by a Roman centurion. Still, all this is in the book of Acts. And interestingly, the specific charge that was brought against Paul was that he brought Greeks into the Jewish temple. That doesn't really matter to us right now. Do you know it was a big deal then? It almost split the churches. This set the stage for what would become a major theme in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We're going to see that in just a couple minutes. After several hearings and a two-year imprisonment in Caesarea, Caesarea is a town up north on the Mediterranean Sea on the northern part of Israel's coast that included more hearings. Paul appealed his case to Caesar and found himself on a ship bound, literally chained, bound to where? To Rome. See, God is getting him to Rome anyway. You ever wonder what God is doing in your life? God has a perfect itinerary for everyone. Paul had intended to go to Rome, but not like that. He's chained, but he's heading to Rome. And the journey unexpectedly took several months rather than the shorter time that it should have taken. In Rome, he was placed under house arrest and that allowed him to carry on his ministry. Now we're getting towards the end of the book of Acts, Acts 28. And it was during that two year period in Rome under house arrest that he wrote four letters that we call the prison epistles. Those are Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. Matter of fact, look at this. Look at chapter 3 in Ephesians, verse 1. These are the references where we draw this out and place this historically in the timeline of Acts. For this reason, I, Paul, what does it say? A prisoner... Of Christ Jesus on behalf of you who? Gentiles. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Turn to chapter 6, verse 20. 
He says, for which I am an ambassador in chains. This is the setting. Paul, he's under house arrest. This is not a maximum security situation, but he is under house arrest. He is confined. He is imprisoned. He may still be in chains. And he's writing this letter to these churches located in the Ephesus region. Okay, so that's the setting. Okay, we've, we've got our map down. Now let's look at, at an overview. So from this theological mountaintop, this Ephesian peak, the view is staggering. And it's no, it's no wonder that during this sort of trek up Ephesians, Paul has two, in, in only six chapters, Paul has two very lengthy prayers. And he's praying for our understanding and comprehension of these truths. Right? Alan read 14 verses of chapter 1. And most of us, most of us, by chapter 6, I'm going to guess, our heads were just swimming like this. This doesn't even make sense anymore. Like, how do you connect all those ideas? Predestination and praying for God's will from the foundations of the earth. That's why Paul has two extended prayers and everything that he wants to say to these believers. He includes two prayers for their understanding of these truths. That's found in chapter 1, verses 15 to 21. And chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. On our trek in the Himalayas, we descended from about 13,500 feet down to 12,000 feet where we stayed at our first lodge on the first day when we were up in the Himalayas. And when we were hiking down, it was rainy, it was foggy. Uh, we finally got to the lodge. Of course, no central heating. Surprise, surprise. They did have a wood-burning stove that was going that felt great. And the fog had totally settled in. And sometimes during that time of the year, the fog can settle in for days. And we were going to depart the following day. And so we're wondering if we're ever going to even get a glimpse of this peak, Mount Manaslu, which is the eighth tallest mountain peak in the world. And so it was kind of to our disappointment when we got to this particular lodge that we could hardly see 20 feet in front of us. We were told that the peak, even at 12,000 feet, is staggering. I'd never seen anything like that in my life. Mount Manislu sits at 26,759 feet. Even from 12,000 feet, that looks impressive. Early the next morning at about 4.45 a.m., the fog and the clouds cleared, and we saw at about 4.45 in the morning the alpenglow on Mount Manislu. You know, Ephesians does that for us theologically. If we track with it closely, and we don't just try to read through it or rush through it, you're going to start reading things that you're going to have to go back and reread. You're going to read terms and you're going to say, does the Bible anywhere give a clear, precise definition of that term? And if so, what does it mean? Election. Foreordination. Predestination. These things were planned from eternity past. How is that even possible? See, the fog is going to start to clear and you're going to see this peak, this theological peak clearly. And even though it was very cold out that morning and we rushed out because we didn't want to miss it, we stood there and took in the beautiful scenery of Mount Manislu. That's what we need to be ready for in Ephesians. This is what this letter does. It removes the clouds and provides a clear view. First, and let me just give you a sample of that. And we're not going to pause this morning and define the words and make the connections. But first, let's look up at sort of that theological mountain peak from a personal level. Turn back to chapter 1. Personal level. Here's what, here's what Paul is telling us God has done. Personally. We, chapter 1, verse 3, are blessed with every spiritual blessing. In chapter 1, verse 4, we are chosen by God. Chapter 1, verse 5, we are predestined to the adoption of sons. Chapter 1, verse 6, we are blessed. Chapter 1, verse 7, we are redeemed 
and forgiven. Chapter 1, verse 9, we know the mystery of His will. By the way, anytime, anytime Ephesians uses the term mystery, it's not something that is unknown. It is something that was hidden, but is now revealed. Okay, so don't, don't, don't be like, oh, this is such a mystery. No, it's not any longer. That's why Paul is writing to remove sort of that layer of fog and mist so that now that mystery, you can see it clearly. Chapter 1, verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance. Chapter 1, verse 13, we are sealed by His Spirit. Chapter 2, verses 5 to 6, we were dead, but have been raised to sit with Christ. That's looking up at the peak. That's what God has done for us personally. Second, from this peak, sort of this Ephesian peak, let's look out across the world because God is doing so much more than just sort of our little me-centered salvation. Sort of my independent, all-inclusive, designer label salvation. He's doing so much more than that. And that's why he's going to start including this term, the church. God has not designed us to live alone. He's not designed us to live in isolation. He's designed us to live together. So what God is doing here is global. That's the dimensions. When you get up to those heights, you're going to see there is so much more out there in the valley of humanity that God is doing. In chapter 2, 11 to 13, Gentiles who were once far off from God and strangers to his promises, strangers to the Abrahamic promises, strangers to the Davidic promises, are brought back to Him by the blood of Christ. He's bringing them together. In chapter 2, verses 14 to 18, God in Christ has broken down that wall separating Jew from Gentile. Do you remember why Paul was arrested in Jerusalem? Because he took who into the temple? He took Gentiles. He He took Greeks into the temple. God is breaking down that wall of separation and removing the enmity between them and reconciling, bringing them back together in order to create one new, he's going to use this word, one new body. And he calls it the church. In chapter 3, verse 6, Gentiles who were considered dirty and far off from God and unclean, they are now fellow heirs with the Jews. Let me ask you, did that always sit well with the Jews? Does that sit well with the Jews today? No. So there is a contemporary application that this letter addresses. Gentiles are now fellow heirs with Jews. Ishmael and Jim both receive the inheritance of Abraham. Okay? To, To put it in our vernacular. They are partakers of God's promise in Christ by the gospel. Chapter 3, verse 15. Now there is one whole family in, not just Jew and Gentile, there is one whole family in heaven and on earth. See the dimensions of this. And then chapter 4, 3 to 6. Our our unity in one body is to be preserved and cherished. Not splintered. Not divided. Not attacked. It's to be preserved because of the amazing work that God has done globally. Third, from this peak, let's look out. Let's look above the peak because this is what Ephesians is going to do as well. It's going to give us sort of a Hubble telescopic image. We're going to look above the peak and we're going to look beyond beyond the peak and into the stars. Because the ultimate aim of God's work in Christ is not merely personal or global what, what word would you use to, to expand it beyond personal and global? Universal? Beyond, by, beyond anything that you can imagine? Let's look at this. Verse, chapter 1, verse 3. He unveils our spiritual blessings. I want you to notice this phrase because it's unique to Ephesians. It's used nowhere else in the Bible. He unveils our spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Like that's beyond that Ephesian peak Into the heavenly places, Christ's work is universal. Look at chapter 1, verse 4. He says that God has been at work for us since when? Before the foundation of the world. 
But my individual salvation doesn't like that thought. No, it doesn't matter about because it's bigger than your individual salvation. It's bigger than a global salvation. This is universally what God has been doing throughout eternity. Look at chapter one, verse nine to ten. He speaks of a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. It's universal. Look at verse 20 of chapter one into 21 in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. This is beyond individual and global to universal. Look at chapter two, verse six. He uses that phrase again, heavenly places. Look at chapter two, verse seven in the coming ages. Look at chapter three, verse nine. I've got to go fast because we've got to we've, we've got to hike quickly today. Then we'll come back and we'll take it slower and like look at all the contours and be like, oh, I didn't see that the first time we went up. OK, we'll do that in, in, in the weeks to come. Chapter three, verse nine, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. Look at verse 10, chapter three. Might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So, so there are powers in the heavenlies that are going to know something about this. Look at verse 11. The eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So him sending his son was not a reaction. It was the plan all along. Look at verse 21, chapter three. Throughout all generations, and in case you didn't get it, forever and ever universal. Look at chapter six, verse 12. Because our warfare, when two believers start fighting, that's not their primary warfare. Paul's going to say our, warf our warfare is not against flesh and blood. But he says in verse 12, chapter 6, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So even the evil that is attacking and the darkness that kind of wants to move in like a fog, it is universal. It's not just local. Now, after a quick overview, let's consider the structure. This will be quick because because even though there are a lot of difficult concepts and words found in this letter, the structure is simple. And basically, you can take the six chapters and divide them in half. You have chapters one through three and you have chapters four through six. Two major segments of three chapters each. Ephesians 1 to 3, though it doesn't sound as simple as, say, Mark might tell the gospel or John, chapter, chapters 1 to 3 is the gospel story, but told like you've never heard it before. Okay? That's what Ephesians does. It is core doctrine, belief, God the Father, the means of salvation, the world, the church, doctrine, Compacted into three chapters to tell you the gospel story from a different angle. Ephesians four to six, the second half of the letter is linked to the first. If you notice the word in chapter four, verse one, he's going to just he's going to start. He's going to say, therefore, therefore, because of the gospel story, like you've never seen it before, perhaps, therefore, you're going to live it out like this. So Ephesians four to six explains how the gospel story of chapters one through three should affect every part of our story as we live out the gospel. So we won't be surprised to find out that it talks about conduct and attitudes and behavior and relationships like husbands and wives and parents and children and business relationships and spiritual warfare. Right doctrine should always lead to right conduct. Or we might say accurate belief should always lead to right thinking. So, on that content, we've split it up clearly and simply. Um, let's look at some of the, the key concepts or phrases or words used. Often you can tell the emphasis of a letter by the repetition of words and phrases, how often they're used, because they're making that point and they keep returning back to it to make that point. Okay. Hate mail does the same thing. They keep making the point that you're a loser and they don't like you. Right. And that's a repetition. You're like, oh, I can see the theme of this letter. Okay. Ephesians is going to do the same, but not like that. 
There's going to be repetitions and words and phrases and unique phrases. So here are some of the, the, the most commonly used phrases in this short letter. We've already talked about this one. I'm mentioning it first, not because it's used the most often, but because of the significance of the expression only being used in this letter at all. So it has something to do with Ephesians in a unique way. The term is in the heavenly places. I'm going to give you the references for this term, not all the others today. In the heavenly places is used in chapter 1, verse 3, chapter 1, verse 20, chapter 2, verse 6, chapter 3, verse 10, and chapter 6, verse 12. So when you scale this peak and you get up to the top of this peak, you're supposed to see something that only this peak can show you. And it's in the heavenly places. So what is happening? What is going on? There are 53 references to someone in this letter. Ephesians contains the most concentrated focus on God the Father on this side of the Gospels. That means from Acts to Revelation, this letter contains more references and in a condensed form to any other letter about God the Father. So God the Father has planned something. He's done something. It is by His divine will that things are unfolding the way they are. It is the Father's work. 53 references. The Father is the unexpressed subject, even of more references beyond the 53, of the subject of predestined. Because earlier on it says that the Father does that. Or making known. Colossians, interesting, Paul also writes the letter to the church at Colossae. By contrast, Colossians has about that many references, 53, to Jesus Christ. And there was an error that was happening at that specific location that Paul is correcting by saying, you're not thinking right or accurately about Jesus Christ. So he takes, he takes that focus in that letter. The word grace is used 13 times. And it's connected to God the Father's grace. That's more occurrences than any other New Testament book except the larger books of Acts, Romans, and Corinthians. The Holy Spirit is mentioned 12 times in the book of Ephesians. That's an interesting comparison. In Ephesians, it says, don't be controlled by wine, but be controlled or filled by the Holy Spirit. And then these sort of these responses will happen. You'll be thankful. You'll sing to yourselves in songs, hymns and spiritual songs, right? Relationships will look like this. And in, Paul, in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus and around the region, it is be controlled by God's Holy Spirit. Interesting, when he writes the church at Colossae, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then these responses will come. You'll be thankful. You'll sing to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. And this is what relationships are going to look like. Why the difference? You're going to have to wait for that answer. But Paul is using these ideas interchangeably, letting the word of Christ dwell in you and being controlled by the spirit as if they work together almost seamlessly. Holy Spirit, 12 references. The church, nine references. More than any other New Testament letter, with the exception of Corinthians. More than any other New Testament letter in the sense of the universal church rather than the local church, Ephesians has more references to the church in general. Mystery is used seven times. And that mystery is so, so that it is not a mystery. Here's the mystery that is now revealed. That Gentiles and Jews are now joined together in one body by faith in Jesus Christ. Riches used six times. And then the, the idea, if we go back to that unity of the Jew and Gentiles, uh, that theme is developed and unpacked by these two words, the word body. So there's something about that analogy, that metaphor that we're supposed to learn from. That's used seven times and one, 11 times. So here's the theme. So if you haven't been taking notes or you have been, get the theme down. Ephesians is all about, and this is the theme that we're going we're gonna to build the whole book around what God the Father is doing in the church through Christ for his own glory forever. You will have that memorized by, by the time we're done. 
Look at, look at Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to look at two verses. The beginning, sort of the middle of the thought and the end of the thought. I'll show you where we get this theme. It's right at the tail end section of the doctrinal part, the gospel story. Look at verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So here's that prayer, one of those lengthy extended prayers. Look at verse 21. Okay, and the reason I, I pointed you to 14 is because the subject there is the Father. Verse 21, he's continuing, To him be glory in the church, be glory to the Father in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. With those two verses in mind, this is, this is what Ephesians elaborates. What God the Father is doing in the church through Christ for his own glory forever. It's right there in the text. Ephesians will issue a twofold call to us. First, uh, to comprehend the Father's plan. Second, to walk worthy of that calling. And that's it. So, so what, this quick overview, what does that have to do with us as Highlands Baptist Church? What does that have to do with you and me? I mean, a lot. I think we would all say that. We said that has to do a lot with what you know, what we are as a church, because we are an extension of this. If we lived in that area, we would have received this letter eventually as a circular letter. It would have come around to us and we would have just stood up and read it like a letter. A letter is to be read in one sitting. Right. Rarely do you get a letter from a loved one unless you are unless you are interrupted with an emergency. You don't like read the first paragraph. and oh, I'll just get I'll get back to that. I can guarantee you if a letter from Joshua came to my wife this week, she wouldn't be distracted by anything. She would read it. Now, the fact that he would actually write two to three pages would be a surprise. But, to, you know, to, to, you don't just say, oh, that was a good beginning, good intro. Maybe next week I'll read the rest of it. No, you read it and then you reread it. Right. And you're looking like, oh, this is what's happening. This is where he's going. This is what he's experiencing. It is a single letter. What does that have to do with us? You know, often. I'm asked about my vision for Highlands Baptist Church. We're coming up next month on being here. Really, it's November 1st for nine years. What is my vision for Highlands? And my response has always been, without fail, what is God's vision for his church everywhere? Wouldn't that be a good place to start? What does God desire for his church here in this locale based upon what is his desire for his church throughout the world? This is one thing Jesus taught. Let the greatest among you become as the youngest. It doesn't mean we become immature. But it means we go back to the days of being sort of four and five years old on the playground where there really wasn't any status. Right. Johnny, at five years old, wasn't pulling up in a Tesla. Johnny was just there on the monkey bars and we loved being with each other. No status, no elite distinguishers, no titles. No, I get to say more because, well, look at my income bracket. I mean, should I even have to say that to you that I should have more of a voice? No. You become his children. And the leader, Jesus says, is one who serves for who is the greater one who reclines at table or one who serves. And I'm afraid many of us would still say the greater one is the one who's ordering off the menu and gets to demand to the waitress how he wants to be served or how she wants to be served. And Jesus agrees. Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. When we talk about Christ's vision for Christ's church, sometimes it helps us to ask to sort of get out of our provincial, local experience and ask something like this. What is a proper vision for a remote island church in Indonesia? Or what is a proper vision for a house church in the outback of Australia? Or what is a proper vision for believers meeting on the sandy shores on the Indian Ocean just outside of the watching eye of Islamic Mogadishu? What would be a good vision for them? 
What we will soon find out is that God's vision for His church everywhere is that we glorify Him by making disciples. The greatest commandment, love God. The second greatest commandment, love others. The Great Commission, make disciples. Love God, love others, make disciples. And that's why we've chosen as our mission statement, it's right there on the table in the back, it's on our website, we need to keep it before one another, we glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ through the gospel of grace. Not another gospel, but a gospel that is tethered to grace. So the question is not only how are we making disciples, but how does any church in any location make disciples? And for that, and I want to finish here, I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to look at verse 11 to verse 16. This is where we're going to end this morning. But it's a 20-minute ending. But it's going to to be where we end. Ephesians chapter 4, 11 to 16. Just glance over it real quick. Just, just, it's a pretty big section. It's one sentence. Consisting of 150 words in the New English Standard Version Bible. 150 words, and yet there is a subject and a verb, like every good sentence should have. And the subject is, in verse 11, he And to put it into context, tracking back up a little higher, the Lord Jesus is the subject. We know this because of verses 9 and 10, just before it, he's the one who descended and ascended. Okay, that puts it into context, helps us identify who this is talking about. Any vision for a church that misses him is not a scriptural vision for the church. He is the subject. Not a single man, whether he be an elder or a deacon or an evangelist, wealthy, powerful, talented, personable. Those may all be great advantages to a church to have. But that man or woman is not the subject. The Lord Jesus Christ is the subject. Ephesians is all about what the God the Father is doing in the church through Christ for his own glory forever. And look at verse 11. It says this, he the subject, and then here's the verb, he gave something. The Lord Jesus Christ has given something to the church. Now, what has he provided? And he's going to give a list. If you look at that in verse 11, apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. He's given men who can Teach. That's what all those have in common. They can proclaim the gospel. They can explain the gospel. We'll describe those men later in the series, but for now, just know that it's what they do that is most important. And what they do, verse 12, is equip. Like an ambulance or a fighter jet that has everything needed to accomplish its mission, what it was designed for. They equip, verse 12, for building up, or some of your translations have edifying. Do you know that the building up of lives is what ministry is all about? If you are part of tearing down lives, you are not building the church. This is about building up and edifying. It's what we are called to do. If you fracture, you're opposing God's mission for his church. If you break and divide and splinter, you are opposing the wholeness and the unity that this letter is promoting. Look at verse 14 so that you know it's still connected to the word of God. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. I like to fish out of a kayak. That's why I do not go to Chatfield, because people are water skiing by 7 in the morning. And if you're in a kayak and you're trying to fish on a larger lake where they allow the boats to go that fast, you start to do this, okay? And all of a sudden you're not focused on fishing, you're focused on not, you know, going the opposite direction. That's what... Bad doctrine does. 
That's what being ungrounded does. It tosses you on the waves. And, you're, and when the wind blows, even a canoe is better than a kayak. If the, you are at the mercy of the wind, that wind blows and your kayak just does this. And you might as well just start trolling and decide you're going to paddle back when you're done fishing. And so you've got the rocking going on and you've got the wind blowing you. And there are believers like that. But God, Christ, has given to the church verbally gifted men to prevent that. To equip the church to build them up so that, verse 14, we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And that craftiness can come down conservative traditional lines and that craftiness can come down liberal progressive lines. Note these words. I'm going to go very fast. So if you just want to listen, that works. Chapter 4, 12, building up. Chapter 4, verse 13, unity. Chapter 4, verse 13, mature. Chapter 4, verse 13, measure. Chapter 4, verse 13, stature. Chapter 4, verse 13, fullness. Chapter 4, verse 15, grow up in every way. Verse 16, joined. Verse 16, held together. Verse 16, equipped. Verse 16, grow. Verse 16, builds itself up. Do we get the point? They're all words of progress and increase and growth. This defines what a healthy church looks like. But, but you've but you got to measure growth biblically. If there are well-functioning programs with a large staff, but there is unconfessed slander, gossip, and divisiveness, it's not a healthy church. If there is an amazing band and stage presence, or if there is a beautiful orchestra accompanying traditional hymns, it may be nothing different than a concert at the Pepsi Center or what a service at the Mormon Temple is like. Those are not accurate gauges of success. Because we're not just... Going somewhere and doing stuff, we're becoming something. We're becoming a mature, grown-up body. Look at verse 16, and this is where we're going to end. This is what it looks like when each part of that body is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in, you would think it would say good doctrine, but what does it say? Love. And it's here I want to commend you as a church because that is what I hear commonly from guests. When they come in, one of the first things they sense now is a community, a gathered together group of Jesus followers who is expressing and showing love. This is exactly what Jesus taught the disciples who did not have the letter to the Ephesians. And he says, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have what? Love for one another. It's how a Christian loves a Christian that displays that we're truly followers of Jesus Christ. We'll explore these during, later during this series, but connected to our mission statement, making disciples of Jesus Christ through the gospel of grace, right? Glorifying God by making disciples of Jesus through the gospel of grace. We have five essentials, scripture, worship, ministry, community, and mission. I want you to just close your Bibles. I want, to, I want you to hear how Christ-centered these are because this is where Ephesians moves. Scripture, knowing Jesus by learning God's word and applying his truth through the power of his spirit. One application we have designed here a platform to help you with that. Not only do we do expository preaching, typically, but we have an adult Bible study and a Sunday school platform built in to help you understand the Scriptures better. For example, at 1045 today, we have a class on biblical counseling that helps build community through caring relationships. It is biblically based counseling. There's a class, an Old Testament study through the book of Joshua. There's a class on living as a church, which would, which would pair so well with a preaching series through Ephesians. There is, there, there is a class on singleness and dating. What does God's word say about that? How should we live within that singleness? How should we approach dating as a follower of Jesus Christ? There's a teen class on the essentials of Christian belief. These are all forms. So as when we say 
Scripture. We're not just saying have a really nice copy of the Bible on your table. We're saying come learn it and learn it together. Commit to that. Worship. Adoring Jesus through God-exalting, word-saturated, spirit-led worship. Let me just take one part of our worship. Singing. Did you sing this morning? Josh Duncan, our guest from last week, loves coming to Highlands. He goes out to Southeast, huge church in Parker. He loves coming to Highlands. Do you know why? Because he can hear people sing. He can hear others sing. Do you allow your affections to be stirred as truth is matched with music? This is what Ephesians 5 says. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. When do we do that? Hopefully not when you see me at Walmart, right? Come, Christians, join too. I will walk the other way. Okay. But we do that when we gather together and we sing the truth to one another with a vertical perspective towards God. What about ministry? Serving Jesus by equipping every member to love God, love others, and make disciples. Just remember this. There are always plenty of dirty feet and wash basins, and you don't need a program or a title to do that. You don't need to wait for an invitation to wash, wash dirty feet. Plenty of disciples to be made. Plenty of hurting people to be comforted. You don't need a special invitation to do that. Jesus said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Two more. Community. Showing Jesus to one another through caring relationships, mutual accountability, and acts of service. Are there 10 to 20 people here whom you have never shared a meal with? Never met for coffee with? Are there 30 people here who have never walked through your front door because you've extended an invitation for them to come over? That's where you begin. We will never have a church program called Invite People Over to Your House. You can just do that. That's what they did early in the early church. Mission, proclaiming Jesus in word and action from our neighborhood to the nations. Real quick question. Where are your followers? Paul would say this in 1 Corinthians 11. Imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Follow me as I follow Christ. Who is here because of your influence, your discipling efforts? And it has to start here because crossing a foreign border, if you're not making disciples here, crossing a foreign border and getting stamps in your passport will not help you make disciples. It begins in Highlands Ranch before Haiti, not as a matter of importance, but of genuineness. Centennial before Senegal, as a matter of significance, not as a matter of we're more significant, but of genuineness. And if we're not making disciples in Denver, we will probably not make them in Dubai. That's just the honest truth. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's what Ephesians is all about. What God the Father is doing in the church through Christ for his own glory forever. I'm going to ask our music team to come forward. And as we sing a hymn based basically written out of Ephesians. You're going to see that as we sing it. Here's our commitment. Knowing Jesus. Adoring Jesus. Serving Jesus. Showing Jesus. And proclaiming Jesus. And if you don't know him, I'm just going to turn your, your attention back to Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace we have been saved through faith. Not of ourselves, not of our own doing. It's by everything that the Father has done in Christ for his church. Let's pray.